Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analysing timely and thought-provoking reads. And this episode is the author interview, which follows the Broccoli Book Club episode on Afropean. The author of the book, Johnny Pitts, is an award-winning writer, journalist, TV presenter and photographer. Born and raised in the north of England, his mother is white and from Sheffield, and his father is African-American from Brooklyn. This book explores Johnny coming to terms with his identity as an Afropean. In trying to find a common identity among black people in Europe, Johnny visits as many black communities as he can in countries like France, Germany and Russia. He captures their untold stories, some of which he identifies with himself. He's the 2020 winner of the Jalak Prize, an annual literary award for British writers of colour. Previous winners include Rennie Edo-Lodge for her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, and Guy Gunaratne, who won the award the year before for his title in Our Mad and Furious City. As Johnny is such an accomplished storyteller, I was eager to find out what kind of reader he had in mind while writing Afropean. Whenever I start writing seriously about something, is I write for myself. It's my own obsessions, it's things that I think are important to write about. So I write to please myself. I think you, you have to in lots of ways. And then the second draft is I write for my community. I think about, okay, I care about this, but why? And why should other people care about it? People who I care about. And then thirdly, I'll write the third draft for my enemy. So it's people who I don't like their politics, but I know they would disagree with my politics as well. So I think, well, what would be their counter arguments? How can I counter their counter arguments before they get a chance to get hold of the work? So yeah, first draft for yourself, second draft for a friend, third for an enemy. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think is the one thing you learned about yourself in the process of writing Afropean? That I'm tenacious and that nothing was going to stop me writing this book. And, you know, I began writing it when nobody was asking me to write this book. And I don't know what gave me the confidence to set out and do it, but I carried on and I finished. And that's another thing that I'd say to young writers, something that I found really helpful, and it's just a physical act, is I love stationery and uh, I love buying notebooks. I love, I just love that feeling of a fresh, crisp notebook and that first page where your pen just glides over the freshness of that first page is beautiful. But, you know, I used to sort of fill notebooks sort of halfway through and then I find another really nice notebook and, and then start that one and leave that one off. But what I start to do with Afropean, what I always do now is I fill a notebook from first page to the last and there's something that's really cathartic and really something really important about filling, seeing a full notebook of ideas and words and then starting another one and filling that one. I think it's something to do with that physical process of seeing something through, start to finish. If you start something, try and finish it. And you don't have to make it perfect, but try and finish it. I found when I was reading Afropean, usually with fiction, I'm pretty quick. It's, I just, I'm just, you know, I'm so hungry. I just want to read more. And with Afropean, there was so much information there. A lot of information that was new to me, lots of names I didn't even recognise. And I've now started reading with a pencil in hand. I'm someone who like notes all the way through books. And it's really nice. It did take a while to get through the book. But for the first time in ages, I felt like, this feels like a good thing. It's good that I didn't leave through it in two days and couldn't recall a piece of information. That's really interesting because I actually tried to design the book that way. 
I didn't want people to race through it. There's a book by a, he was a leftist publisher um, who published Wretched of the Earth, Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, you know, when it was quite dangerous to publish that book. And then in the late 1980s, he wrote a book with a, a photographer called Anake France and together they journeyed through the, the suburbs of Paris and produced this book called The Roissy Express. And it was an amazing book. And you know what? It was kind of boring, the book. And it's not that I want anyone to think my book's boring exactly, but it was kind of, there were these moments where where nothing is happening and to dwell in that sort of strange grey area where not much is happening, it felt very honest and it was kind of, they were dealing with the banality of their trip. And I thought, you know what, I, it took me ages to read that book, even though it's not a particularly long book. And I had to keep going away and, and researching what they were talking about if I didn't understand it. And actually, I didn't want this to be a quick book to, for people to read. I did want people to spend a long time with it and go away. A lot of people say um, to me, uh, which I think they say it in a positive way, but they say it's a book that I had to keep putting down. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt, yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, I think what they're saying there is, it's you know, they're reading it and there's quite a lot there and you close it and then you think, about it and you wonder whether you agree with it or it might be something you don't know about and then you go back to it and I quite like that you know I quite like that it's a book that isn't just a quick read and then you throw it away. And I actually really liked also the inclusion of photographs which really broke it up quite nicely and I liked that it felt almost like a collection of essays because obviously you know you're on your trip and you are in different areas and you know you, you have interesting like chapter names and I really appreciated that the chapters were like 10, 12, 15 pages long because it was perfect amount to sit down, read, finish that chapter and then just go away and think about it. And I think, yeah, there's real value in knowing how to separate moments within a narrative. I'm so glad you said that, Diora. That's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to offer the reader that you're the first person who's ever said that to me as well, but especially with the chapters and also the photographs, offering the reader places to pause. While I didn't want to be reductive, you know, I'm working class and I'm from an area that's pretty rough and I wanted people from where I'm from to engage with the work. I didn't want to have to sort of dumb it down in any way. But then at the same time, I, I wanted to build into the architecture of the book a way for people to get through it at their own pace. So I'm so pleased. And, and also kind that. of make it accessible. Yeah, exactly. That's really fascinating. I'm so glad I picked yeah, up on that. Yeah, completely. If you could have dinner with one author, living or dead, who would that be? You know, yeah, Shakespeare would be interesting because I, I want to know if he's really just one person or not, or if it was actually a group of people. <laughs> but but I would say Alexander Pushkin would be really interesting. I'd love to speak to him about the last novel that he wrote that was kind of unfinished, that was about his great-grandfather who was African, and he wrote sort of lovingly about him. The novel was called St Peter the Great's Negro, and obviously a bit of an anachronistic term there, but, you know, he wrote about his great-grandfather with great esteem and love, I'd love to unpick this notion of Afropean with Alexander Pushkin, the godfather of Russian literature. <laughs> oh, I, I have to really just agree with you that I wish you could do that because reading your book and when I got to the bit where, you know, you talk about Pushkin and his great grandfather, you know, I grew up in Uzbekistan. I grew up hearing Pushkin's poems. When I told my mom after reading your book, I was like, hey, did you know that Pushkin was mixed race? She was like, what? And, you know, we had this really long conversation about the whitewashing of Pushkin and how that one detail has completely changed the narrative and the way we think about Pushkin. And it kind of made me think a lot more about 
the history of black people within USSR and pre-USSR and Russia and we just never hear about it. And I, I really would love there to be more research about that as well. And it was kind of like that all over Europe. I felt like there was this hidden history that had exactly been whitewashed. I think in the book, I talk about how Europe has a way of destroying by assimilation. So, you know, my dad, who's African-American and grew up in Brooklyn, he had this kind of history he could anchor himself to and he knew all about all the people that had come before him and black history had been woven into the sort of narrative, even though it's constantly been under threat, been woven into the narrative of the United States of America in a way that black history hasn't in Europe. And even Europe kind of sees racism in general as sort of a problem that isn't relevant to Europe. It's like, oh, that's something that happens in America and it's like... Now we need to have a chat about that, man, you know, and that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book is just uh, explore these things that were never taught to me at school and when I should have been taught them. Yeah, and I must admit, also reading your book, I was really shocked at how little I knew. And when you think about racism, when you think about Black Lives Matter, you think America, police brutality, oh, a bit of police brutality in the UK, even though that's definitely not, you know, the whole truth. And then, oh, Europe. Oh, well, you know. We just don't talk about Europe. That's really weird. And I think I used to be really naive and think that, you know, the historical amnesia that happens here, for example, in terms of 400 years of colonialism and slavery, I thought that was because there was a lot of shame about what Britain did in terms of conquering the whole world and, quite frankly, doing horrific, horrific things. But it turns out it's not shame, it's deliberate. And I, I don't know why it took me so long to realise that. But of course it's deliberate because as soon as you start having these conversations, as soon as you start acknowledging your history, you have to then think about, wait, what if the system that we have now is like built on that? And then once you start realising that, you're like, oh, are we going to have to like do reparations? You know, and, and I think that's why so many people are really keen to avoid these conversations because it's not just uncomfortable it would require a lot of going back and thinking about redistributing in terms of you know trying to achieve equality that's really interesting actually paul gilroy the sociologist has this notion this term that he calls post-colonial melancholia and he talks about how the obsession with world war ii in this country is on the back that completely discounts the 24 million Russians that died, by the way, which is something that I kind of learned through this. And we, you never get taught that fact at school. But the obsession with World War II is because it's the last, quote unquote, good thing that happened to the country. And it means that if you focus on being the heroes of World War II, you don't have to think about the death of empire. And in fact, you don't really have to think about empire at all. Were you an avid reader as a child? I did read quite a bit, but I was doing what I think all children should do. And that's, you know, I was outside playing. And, you know, I think that writers should be serious about reading. But I think before sort of your teenage years, I think reading is, is overrated in a certain way. <laughs> because I think that, you know, a lot of your writer's currency actually comes from, you know, living your life. And what you really want is you want that perfect balance of somebody who reads a lot and has also led an interesting life and then kind of get this nice mix of the literary, but also this experiential kind of writing. That's my favourite kind of writing, not just one or the other, you know. Um, that's really interesting. I had a similar experience where I really got into reading the last couple of years because I found that I just didn't used to care as much about the world around me and, and the things that were written in books. And I found a lot of it also really inaccessible and in language that 
a lot of the time was confusing. I felt like a lot of the stories I couldn't really relate to. Is that something that you experienced yourself growing up that maybe some books felt like not very accessible to you? Yeah, um, I think that a lot of the children's books even stuff that I didn't read, like that came a little bit later, like stuff like Harry Potter, I didn't ever see myself in those kind of stories. How I got into reading was through kind of reading these fantasy books. One of my favourite books was The Spell of the Winter Wizard by Linda Lowry. It's part of the series of books called Endless Quest. It was a bit like that episode of Black Mirror Bandersnatch where, you know, you can pick your own route forward. And that taught me to always leave room for the reader. And also I could imagine myself in the characters because the characters almost weren't human because anytime you read about human characters they never included people like me um what are you reading right now Oh gosh, um, I inherited a whole bunch of books from my father-in-law who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago and he's got some crazy sort of first edition books from like the 60s and 70s so I'm reading through a lot of, of his collection including um, Das Kapital <laughs> by Karl Marx which is uh, full on but in terms of like just reading for fun a book that I'm reading at the moment is The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. It's a kind of a reappraisal of the 1990s and, and what it was like growing up then. And it's actually from a kind of quite middle-class white perspective, but he's quite critical of the world that he grew up in, which I, I find that really interesting. I'm also rereading one of my favourite novels, which is Journey by Moonlight by Antal Gerb, which I'm really excited to announce I will be doing the audiobook version of. I cannot wait to do that. So I'll be doing That's that. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that book. And what else am I reading? I've always got a few on the go. There's a really incredible book by a, a writer called Carlo Ravelli called The Order of Time. And he's a physicist who just kind of is explaining what time is. And it's fascinating because it's not what you think it is. You know, it's like they don't really know what time is. But if time is anything, it's kind of entropy. It's things becoming more chaotic. But I learned all kinds of things. Like if the person who stood at the top of a mountain will age less than the person who stood at the bottom of a mountain. Time moves quicker at the bottom of the mountain. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah, it's completely mind-blowing. And it's it's helping me deal, because my father passed away in December as well, and it's sort of helping me deal with mortality in a certain way. It's talking about how people do die, obviously. A certain notion of time can affect us. But actually, there is a different way to think of where people go when they die they just kind of reconfigured in the grand scheme of birth i'm not explaining it as well as carlo Ravelli does but it's a beautiful book at what age did you start writing yeah i would say i began in earnest really writing a lot of poetry uh, when i was 16 and, and hip-hop really helped me get into literature when school was kind of failing me to be honest i had all these other sort of almost unofficial energies around me that were encouraging me to write and that came in the form of things like comic books and uh, but especially hip-hop that's really fascinating so with hip-hop and music i guess so much of it is expressive did you feel like that medium gave you the space to find your expression, maybe in a way that traditional writing at the time didn't provide the space for? There was very few books that I read growing up that kind of dealt with my reality. And then there was hip hop, which did deal with my reality. It was there when everything else was failing me. And it was talking about some of the issues and the pressures that I, as a young black kid from pretty rough area, was dealing with. And so that's why hip hop was so important for me. And that's why the kind of expression 
that you'd find in the writing of, especially those kind of writers like, uh, or MCs like Talib Kweli and Mose Def, where it's like they're kind of in this in-between space of, on the one hand, they have an amazing use of words. One of the lines that really got me into writing was Talib Kweli's line, look in the skies for God, what you see besides the smog, a broken dreams flying away on the wings of the obscene. And that's such a beautiful line. Talib Kweli also once said, you know, I speak at schools a lot because they say I'm intelligent. No, it's because I'm dope. If I was whack, I'd be irrelevant. There's that understanding of way of expressing yourself outside of the academy, which was always important to me. What are some of the things outside the literary world you do to kind of help you chill out a bit and bring your creative energy and help you work through blocks? For me, photography is a real meditation and it's an excuse as well. It's the same with having a pen and a pad. With a camera, I'm never alone. It's a great friend. So when I feel like being alone, but I don't want to be lonely, my camera lets me experience a kind of sense of solitude and I can go on long walks to the hinterlands um, or even in the in the countryside in Sheffield. I grew up in a, a council estate and so my mom still lives here. But, you know, 50 minutes away is the Peak District and parts of it look like Canada, you know. So that helps me engaging with nature, but also flaneuring, I believe is the term, flaneuring the city with a camera is really good for my mental health. I love doing that, especially in lockdown, actually, because I'm back at my mum's because my mum's got a garden and it's just to support with our daughter. There's my mom, and then there's my partner, Natasha, and then my daughter, Celia, and It feels nice sometimes to just really not have to answer any questions, have to play any five-year-old games. (laughs) She loves me playing this character, one of her favourite cartoons called PJ Masks, called Luna Girl. And it's really sweet because when I'm playing Luna Girl, who is like probably like a a 10-year-old villain, to her, she just sees me as Luna Girl. (laughs) But it's nice sometimes to just take a walk alone and take really sort of, uh, I don't know, pretentious uh, pictures. And you mentioned you're back in your childhood home. Um, Firstly, how is that? And secondly, what are some of the things you would say to a younger version of yourself now? It's nice being at home and constantly, even when, you know, before lockdown, I've been living in Marseille and London, I'll always make frequent trips home just to ground myself. But at the same time, Sheffield can be quite parochial and growing up here, I would say I was discouraged from writing. I remember using this word ubiquitous that I'd just learned when I was seven and my teacher telling me to stop showing off. And you get a lot of that in Sheffield, you know, stop showing off, don't act clever, don't think you're something special, which I think on the one hand, it means you kind of grow up being quite down to earth. On the other hand, it means that you grow up with a, a lack of confidence in the creative realm, you know. So for me, it's about engaging with Sheffield, but also leaving and it, is and has been important to me. Mm. And just as a side note, do you have any favourite pens? Do you have like a favourite pen that just glides on the paper really well? I'm glad you asked. Absolutely. Papermate Flex Grip Ultra Medium Nib. <laughs> yeah. A Papermate Flex Grip Ultra is the one. They're not the most beautiful pens and I've been through so many, but for, I would say for the last... 11, 12 years, all I've written on literally are these Papermate Flex Grip Ultras. They're great, kind of rubberate, but feel really comfortable to hold. You have to apply just the kind of right amount of pressure on the page to get a beautiful sort of flow going. So yeah, Papermate Flex Grip Ultra is the one. 
Wow. <laughs> I've never related to anything so much. I'm also a Papermate fan. Oh, nice. Thank you so much. That was so delightful. <laughs> never met anyone so into their stationery as much as me. Um, so do you have any tips for aspiring writers out there? You know, what would you tell them in the beginning of their careers? Especially for those writers who might not see much representation in the industry as well. I think the best piece of advice that I ever heard was by Tanahisi Coates, and he was saying how, you know, keep going, just keep going. And usually by the time most people hit their sort of late 20s, they give up because it's too hard and they're not getting enough money and they end up going to business school or whatever. Whereas if you carry on, by the time you're 35, you have this sort of unique skill set because you've been going for longer than people in their early 20s. So you tend to be a, a more accomplished writer. And then at the same time, everyone who's your age or most people who are your age have given up by then. So the talent pool thins out. So I would just say, find a way to keep going and try not to worry too much about smashing it overnight, you know, play it for the long game and really try and focus on the pro process rather than the outcome. Mark Twain once said something that is kind of annoying, especially if you're young, broken, black, but he says, you know, write without pay until somebody offers pay. But I think what he's getting at there is focus on the process, focus on becoming a good writer, and then people will find you. And also, you know, to encourage being found, I would say set up your own platform that's what I did nobody was interested in this Afropean idea I went through various uh, official outlets nobody was interested so I set up my own online magazine it cost me nothing really to set up I actually began on Facebook and then turned into a website and from there you know I, I could publish my own writing which is amazing and I know full well that without setting up my own online platform I wouldn't have got this deal with Penguin and what about sometimes reaching out for help and asking people who might have had similar experiences to you or you might have, you know, things in common with? Would you recommend for young people who might be interested in writing to reach out to their favourite authors or try and find a mentor? Is that something that might be useful? Yeah, that's a really important point, actually. I probably should have said that before anything else. Yeah, find a mentor and you'd be surprised, you know, even the, some of the biggest authors if you contact their literary agents and just be very humble and honest about what you're wanting, you'd be amazed at how people will get back to you. And if they don't, don't be put off by it. They're probably just really busy and inundated with requests. I've had support and help from people who... I don't know why they helped me, actually. I guess they were paying it forward. But, you know, people like Bernadine Evaristo and Roger Robinson and Carol Phillips, I contacted them when... I don't like this term exactly, but you know what I'm saying when I say when I was a no one and they helped me, especially Carol Phillips, actually. Without Carol, um, again, I wouldn't have signed this deal. So really, you know, people are, are very kind, actually. And I think especially within the black community or a working class writer who knows that struggle, they're very keen. They're on the lookout to help people who are growing up like they did. What are the three books that you think shaped your life? Um... I mean, there are so many, but I'd say uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. I was never the same after reading that book. A, because, I mean, it just works so well on sentence level. It's so evocative. And also because of some of the characters in that book, I remember I was really haunted by this pretty awful character called Dr. Bledsoe, who kind of tells the protagonist, never become a bitter black man, you know. And I guess that's something that I've been fighting for my whole life, is fighting against that becoming a bitter black man. <laughs> and I just found it an incredible book. 
and also I'd say um, in terms of self-help book, there's a book called Free Play Improvisation in Life and Art by Stephen Nachmanovich that is great because it's not about productivity, it's about playfulness and it's not about crushing it, but rather like living a deep life gently as part of a community. So it's kind of that rare thing. It's a self-help book that isn't all about inserting yourself into a neoliberal system, you know. Do you feel there is pressure to do that nowadays? You know, the hustle culture and just grind, grind, grind. And how does that affect you? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the the nice things about lockdown in a way is that it slowed everything down. That notion of boredom, feeling bored. Remember that feeling? Uh, (laughs) You know, and it's in lockdown. It's wow. Hello, boredom. Uh, And it's actually quite nice. And sometimes you get led down this path of creativity through boredom. I think we are overstimulated. And if we enjoy doing anything, we're encouraged to immediately commodify that thing, which can ruin it sometimes. Sometimes it's nice to just create for the sake of creating. We don't have to make professions of everything that we love. You know, here I am as a writer and getting paid to write and it's great. But I definitely think there's something to be said for for doing things, not just for monetary gain, but for the love of it. And I think there is a real pressure, you know, especially on young people to try and turn themselves into sort of little brand experts and capitalists yeah when really what they should be doing is just playing around so finally i just want to know are you working on anything in the present that you'd like to tell your readers your fans about you've mentioned you know doing the audiobook but is there anything else in the works well there are a couple of things in the works. one is a book that i might be doing with a very very well-known and brilliant writer and it'd be a collaboration with my photographs and his poetry but I can't talk about that too much but we're hopefully that's going to come off and then the next full-length project that I want to work on I can't talk too much about because it's just I would bore you and it's I've not thought it through properly yet but I'm at the beginning of this journey that kind of I would say if Afropean is about reconciling races this book is about reconciling generations. So I might have to speak to you, actually, <laughs> You're, oh, uh, you know, oh with God, your work course, on generations. Yeah, I might have to speak to you about, yeah. I think the world is living in the wake of the 20th century and I'm very interested in the kind of failed futures we were promised in the 20th century that didn't come to be. I want to say a huge thanks to Johnny Pitts for coming on this episode and giving us an insight into who he is. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. So get reading now, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not leave a review on your favourite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Rene Richardson, and mixed by Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production.